0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I don't have any disclosures, um, um, financial association with any of the stuff that I'm going to be discussing, aside from the fact that I do serve on one of the committees that advises the National Kidney Registry, which is one of the kidney exchange program that you're going to hear about a little later on or more colloquially known as the kidney swap so i'm just going to take it through a number of series of questions and maybe myths that may be misunderstood in the general public and try to debunk each one of them so myth number one um just be patient uh, and wait your time out on the waiting list because a deceased donor kidney is going to come your way very soon um Unfortunately, that is probably wishful thinking. And I grabbed this uh, page off of the um, United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the uh, organization that uh, organizes transplantation in the United States. And you can see here on the uh, left-hand side, as of a couple of hours ago, there were about 100, over 100,000 patients who waiting for a life-saving uh, organ transplant. Um, and that's you know far outstrips the 29,000 that was performed in a year um, and not to mention the fact that every single year that the patient doesn't get transplanted, there's more people getting added to the waiting list so and so that that number actually incrementally increases from year to year. And as you can see here, this is another kind of graphic representation of how that there's an increasing number of patients who's on the waiting list, and um, you know this blue line Represents those who are still active on the waiting list. these are patients who 's medically complex and needs to be worked up before they can be made active but overall trend is the waiting list has grown from year to year and interestingly enough, if you see the number of patients who get transplanted within a year or within about three years, that number has actually dropped in recent years, and that 's because the number of patients who's waiting increasingly long periods on a waiting list, for example, this one represents patients who's been on a waiting list for more than five years, um, and, um, and this one's patients who's been waiting four to five years. That has actually you know, increased uh, over the years, and so patients, they're not only more patients on a waiting list, they're also increasingly waiting longer for a life-saving organ. Most number of patients who's on a waiting list for a kidney transplant, uh, typically lose the kidney function due to diabetes, um, as represented by this uh, top line, blue line that's up there, um, and then followed by hypertension, because I get a lot of questions from patients about why it is that somebody would lose the kidney function to the point where they need dialysis or transplant. So diabetes and high blood pressure probably represents almost two-thirds, if not three-quarters of the causes. And this is kind of the uh, waiting list that you can think of um, here, specifically at UCSF, uh, blood group O individuals are the most common blood group in in the United States, and patients who go on a wait list can expect to be waiting eight to nine years for a kidney transplant to come along. Blood group A is the second kind of most common blood group, and that's typically waiting six to eight. Blood group B is the third most common blood group. Again, that's also waiting eight to nine, the most advantaged patients are those who have the rarest blood type, which is AB, and there's you know, theoretically less patients whose AB blood type is waiting for an organ, so they get advantage at a certain point. Um, but we're still talking about it's probably not zero that you'd have to be very lucky to hit that jackpot, but it's probably closer to about four years. And unfortunately, UCSF is a microcosm of the larger issue of waiting times in California. Um, California's got one of the longest waiting times in the entire country. And um, I was told by one of my colleagues that, uh, you know the, uh, there's a, a calculator that represents the, in graphic form what it is that if you put in certain characteristics about a patient, and you can actually play around with this uh, on your own, and you can put in various different transplant centers around the country. So I here, as, a, uh, as an example, I've put in UCSF, and I have theoretically put in a very generic 55-year-old Caucasian gentleman who's non, non-Latino, who's about 5'8 in height, 150 pounds, blood type O, the longest wait time. And here it spits out the fact that only 8% of patients will eventually get a kidney transplant on the deceased donor wait list uh, in five years once they get on the wait list. But a whopping 67%, so two-thirds of those patients who go on the wait list will never make it to the point where they can get transplanted. Either they die on the waiting list or to, once they get actually accrue enough time for a transplant, they've actually gone medically too sick to receive a transplant at that point. Um, and at the end of five years, a quarter of them are still waiting. Unfortunately, did not pass, and they're still medically considered uh, suitable for transplant. So these are pretty grim statistics. And as you see here, it's compounded by the fact that then, even though you see that there's a slight trend for an increase in the number of deceased uh, organ donation that's out there, which is still very outstripped by the demand for it. The number of living donor kidney transplantation has actually peaked in about 2004. And since then, that number has actually remained static, if not even declined a little bit. And nobody has been able to figure out why it is that the living don- donation rates have c- have come down. So the other question would be, a deceased donor organ is just as good as a living donor organ. Well, if you take a look at this, um, Preemptive transplants are those that happen in a patient who get a transplant when they find out about the fact that they have kidney disease without them ever going on any form of dialysis. Whereas a non-preemptive transplant are those who actually spend a little bit of time on dialysis before they make it to the transplant. And you can see here that a proportion of patients who sustain a rejection after a transplant is much lower in those who get to a transplant straight away without hitting any dialysis. And in fact, if you look at the likelihood that their kidney transplant is going to continue to last, the longevity of that transplant is much better in patients who had a transplant without doing any dialysis compared to patients who received any period of transplant. Obviously, the longer you've been on dialysis before the transplant, the the, the worse off the, the kidney survival is. And this particular study here looked at a particular donor who donated both of their organs one of which went to a patient who either had no dialysis or at least less than six months of dialysis compared to somebody who had more than 24 months of dialysis. And these were the same kidneys coming from the same donor. And you can see here there's a separation in the longevity of that transplant that advantages those who had either no or very short periods of dialysis. So that kind of goes towards saying you want to get to a transplant sooner and preferentially you would want to get to a transplant without hitting any dialysis. And with those wait times that I showed you earlier on, at least at UCSF and here in California, I think the only true way to get to a transplant like that is really through a living donor. On top of that, the the, the function and the longevity of a living donor kidney after they get transplanted, all things being equal, probably outstrips the results you see at any, any period of time from a, a deceased donor kidney transplant. So the, high, the, the blue lines here represent the living donor uh, transplants, and the, the lines down here represent the organs from deceased donors. And you can see here, every single one of these time points, um, the living donor outcomes outstrips the uh, those from a deceased donor. And interestingly, if you look at the relationship of living donors to the recipient, it used to be that the lion's share of it came from individuals who were genetically related to their recipient. That number has actually dropped um, uh, over the years. And what has actually taken its place is the green line here, which represents unrelated donors. When I say you're unrelated, most times these individuals knew the recipient to a certain extent. So, you know, you can think of it, they may not be genetically related, but they may be emotionally related. We're talking about spouses, friends, and, and very you know, even church members. um, And I think one of the reasons why that's actually happened is because if you look at this orange line here, which represents the pair donation, which is known as the kidney swap, that number has actually increased quite exponentially since 2008. And that's probably uh, uh, what accounted for a lot of these unrelated transplants. Um, Interestingly, if you look at the separation in the kidney function and how long the kidney is expected to survive, um, it's best for individuals who receive a kidney from his full sibling. So, you know, it's not surprising because these individuals tend to be better genetically matched um, and not as good if you have a half sibling. But, in, in fact, I think... The important thing to note here is regardless of the relationship of the donor to the recipient, I think by and large, hands down, having a living donor kidney transplant far outweighs uh, the, the, the benefits from a deceased donor if you have to wait an extended period of time on dialysis for that deceased donor organ. Um, and what what I wanted to represent here is almost two-thirds of the, the donor uh, organs from the living donor kidney is still coming from uh, a Caucasian donor, um, whereas the donation rate amongst the ethnic minorities in the, in the country is still kind of lagging behind. And that doesn't seem to have um, – that, that trend seems to be sustained over the years. So that was kind of more an American-centric view. Does this still hold true outside of the United States this particular study looked at the outcomes of living kidney donation versus deceased donor kidney transplantation in Iran. And as you can see here, a living donor kidney expected 97% of kidneys were still surviving at the end of one year, which is no, not very different compared to a kidney from a deceased donor. But if you take it out to three years that number on the deceased donor really significantly drops to 67%. And the p-value here represents a special way that they look at the statistical significance of whether this is, this difference is actually significant or not, and it truly is. And if you look at the patient survival, even though it looked like at the end of one year, the patient survival between the living donor and the deceased donor isn't significantly different, that difference seems to separate quite out quite widely at, at the end of three years. So it seems like this is universal. It doesn't just hold true here in the, here in the United States. Um, in, in, in overseas, it, it seems to be that the living donor outcomes tend to be better as well. And this is just a graphic representation. Uh, up here, it's the uh, kidney survival, and the green line represents the living donor, and the the higher the line is, um, the the better the outcomes. So for, for the longevity on the kidney and patient survival, it looks like it's much better off for an individual to get a living donor. Myth number three, being a living kidney donor is unreasonably risky, and nobody should ever even think about going under the knife to give up one of the kidneys. So historically, how this all happened was in 1954, at the Peter Brigham um, Hospital in in Boston. And this was uh, one of the the, the first documented uh, living donor that happened. They were twins, identical twins, and these were the uh, Merrick brothers. And in fact, the surgeon who performed that first transplant went on to um, receive the Nobel Prize for his uh, groundbreaking work. But herein lies the Catch-22, because the health of the donor dominates over all other considerations. A major operation that is performed on a normal person who otherwise would not benefit in any way from the, from the surgery itself requires that we give it a lot of thought and that only if we satisfy the moral obligation that we watch out for the well-being of the donor and we're not going to put them at too excessive of a risk should we then proceed with that donation surgery. So if you look at the outcomes um, of patients who's been a kidney donor... And I've basically picked a number of large studies, one in Sweden, one in Japan, one in France, one in the United States. And the number of patients that they looked at who were previous donors range anywhere between 3 to 3,600. And it spans a number of different years. uh, We'll follow up ranging from one year to all the way to 53 years what they were able to show is that if you look at the graphic representation of each one of these four studies, it looked like those lines, even though they're not superimposed on each other, it was not significantly different from each other, meaning that the survival of the donors were no different to a general population, which kind of gave us a lot of reassurance that we're not putting donors at unnecessary risk, even if they subjected them to surgery to donate a kidney. And this is even more reassuring in the sense that this is a, a large U.S. study looking at all the kidney donors, 80,000 of them uh, in the United States that was performed between 1994 and 2009. And they looked at a comparison group of patients who were selected from this this study called the NHANE study. What that is is not important, but it's, it's supposed to be representative of the general U.S. population. And they were selected, meaning that they weeded out patients who had a lot of heart disease, lung disease, and things that would stop them normally from being a living donor. So you're trying to compare apples and apples, um, and what they were able to sh- show at the median follow-up of about six years was that the mortality of the live donors were actually lower compared to the general public, the selected uh, controls. So that gives us you know, at least a, a little bit of uh, a reassurance that we're not doing um, the donors harm. I don't know how many of you saw this movie, um, but then something came in 2014 that completely changed the landscape. Um, This was a large study that was performed in Norway. Granted, it wasn't here in the United States. And they basically compared kidney donors, about 2,200 of them, um, and they looked for patients who were highly selected and would qualify their criteria for being a, a kidney donor. And they compared it to patients who were representative of the general Norwegian public that was selected from this HUNT survey. And again, they weeded out patients who normally would have characteristics that would have prevented them from being a kidney donor. And they compared those two different groups, and they were looking at certain risk factors like age, uh, male gender, smoking history, uh, their blood pressure control, and also their, their weight as well. And in every single one of those instances, it looked like there was no you know, significant differences between the control group and also those who served as kidney donors. And surprisingly, what they were able to show is that it looked like patients who had been donors had a higher mortality compared to these highly selected controls. And interestingly, that separation in the risk of mortality didn't become apparent until 15 years and on. So that may actually give us some pause because the earliest studies that I showed you the median follow up there was about six and a half years. So, no wonder we don't see a difference between the controls and the donors because it takes a long time for you to see a difference. Being a kidney donor, after you adjust and use a lot of kind of stati- fancy statistics to adjust for certain risk factors and certain differences between the control group and the donor group, still represented a 30% higher risk of them dying. Um, And specifically, if you look at the risk of cardiovascular deaths, it's increased by 40% in the donor population compared to the control population. And if you look at the risk of developing kidney disease in the donor population compared to the control population, we're talking about an 11-fold increase. So you may be thinking at this point, wait, you're lying to me. You said that there's no risk in being a donor. You, you just said that, and, and now you show me all these statistics. You, you, you're really scaring me here. But I think what we have to kind of bear in mind is that, you know, a lot of these studies, you have to take it for what it's, it's worth. And if you look at the absolute risk of developing kidney disease in the donor population, there were nine cases of this out of 1,900. We're talking about a percentage of 0.47% of the donor population who developed kidney disease. Granted, the risk of developing kidney disease in the general population is probably very low, and so relatively, it looks like the donor population had a very high risk. But if you ha- put it in context, this risk is extraordinarily low. Um, I think I looked it up one time. The risk of anyone stepping out the door, getting hit by a car, and dying from that is probably a couple fold higher than that risk of developing kidney disease. And again, I set the median time to to developing kidney disease is probably about 19 years after they donate it. So when I'm counseling patients about coming forward as a donor, I tell them that, yes, there is a real risk of developing kidney disease, but we're not going to see it in the next year. We're not even going to see it in the next 5, 10, 15 years. We're talking about a good 20 years before that, that risk really steps in. Interestingly, seven of the nine cases of kidney failure in the donors was actually caused by what they call an immunologic disease, which means that there may be a hereditary component, and since most of the donors, I think in this study, 80% of them were related to the recipient, it caused into question whether maybe there's some genetic factors that we don't know of just yet that may put that donor at high risk because their loved one, who's a genetically related individual, also sustained kidney disease from something that may or may not be genetically related. I have to caution you that 100% of those donors were of Caucasian and of Scandinavian ancestry, so it may not be translatable to a U.S. population. Most of the donors were relatives of the recipients, as I mentioned earlier on. And the donors were very select- were selected from throughout the entire Norway. They have a single-payer system, and so they were able to get all the data on all the donors, whereas the control that I showed you earlier on belonged to this study called the HUNT survey, and that was only uh, a sampling of patients in one specific county within Norway, and apparently, I'm told, the, the life expectancy of that particular county in Norway is highest compared to the rest of the country. So, you know, you're comparing a very, very, extremely healthy and selected general population uh, uh, population against the the donor population, and you know the donors were selected through a much wider time point, 1963 all the way to 2007, whereas the controls were in a very defined period between 84 and 87, um, and there were longer follow up amongst the controls because the last patient that they recruited was in 1987, so they got all that time to follow up on the controls that may have affected the mortality and the rates of kidney disease. So that's Norwegian population. What do we know about uh, US population? So this was um, uh, published also in 2014. They looked at 96,000 kidney donors here in the United States that was performed between 94 and 2011. Two thirds of the live donors were biologically related to recipient. And they had 9,300 controls but they had 96,000 donors. So you can't just, you know, this is like tenfold higher number of donors compared to the controls. You can't really make apples to apples and orange to oranges comparison. So they had to use some fancy statistics, which I'll come back to a little later on, to inflate the number of controls so that they can have an equal comparison to the donors. And um, kidney failure was defined as Anyone who started dialysis, and we have a record of those since the, 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 uh, the, the, the country actually keeps track of everyone who started dialysis here. Um, patients who ended up on the waiting list, and we keep track of that as well, or patients who eventually get a kidney transplant. And you can see here, the live donors had a higher chance of developing kidney disease compared to the non-donors. And it looks like it's influenced by the patient's uh, ethnicity. African-American patients had, a, had the highest risk uh, compared to the Hispanic population, compared to the Caucasian population. And if I would put it in perspective, all comers, that increase of risk is about a 0.269% increase. Whereas in African-Americans, if you break it down, it's about a 0.5% increase of risk. And the lowest risk category were in the Caucasian population where the increased risk was 0.22. So again, I want you to put this in perspective. Relatively speaking, yes, donors do have a high risk of developing kidney disease compared to the non-donor selected population, but the absolute risk here is still, we're talking about a fraction of a, a percent. And if you look at the, the outcomes here, this is live donor, they have a higher risk of developing kidney disease compared to the healthy non-donors, who in turn have a lower risk compared to the unscreened general public. No wonder the earlier studies that I showed you before 2014 tends to show that donors were no worse off compared to the general public, because if you you took all comers, that risk of developing kidney disease in the general public was actually much higher than live donors. Um, Again, there's probably a lot of caveats that you have to take away in terms of knowing that you can't just take all these studies at face value. Because using that fancy statistical method that they overinflated the controls in order for them to get enough numbers to compare to the donor population, if you disregarded that and you didn't do that fancy statistical uh, uh, adjustment and you just looked at the crude rates of kidney failure amongst the donors, it's about 10 per 10,000. Whereas in the donor population, that 9,600 patients who were, who, were, who were in the non donor population, that rate was actually higher when you only looked at the crude rate. So again, I think you have to take it with a large grain of salt, and if you look at the conclusions from the authors from both those papers, they're saying, I'm not here to say that we should discourage living donors um, just because there's maybe a higher risk of kidney failures among the donor population. I think you have to counsel the donors very carefully, and you have to select them very, very carefully so that you're not putting patients unnecessarily at risk and so long as we're all adults, we understand that there's, you know, there's risk walking out this door and getting hit by a car. So long as we understand what the implications of being a donor is and the, 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 the downhill implications of being able to help a loved one or somebody relive a, a life that, is, that has good quality of life, um, I think it may be worth it. So myth number four, you can receive a kidney from almost any donors who steps forward to offer a kidney. So it used to be that so long as you have a compatible blood type, we can go forward with the donation. It wasn't until 1969 when Dr. Terazaki, who's probably the godfather of what we now term as uh, transplant immunology, found out that if you have a positive cross-match, meaning that when you mix the donor cells with the blood sample from the recipient, and you added a lot of complements, which helps with um, punching holes in the cells, and if the recipient happens to have what we call preformed antibodies against this particular donor, you end up causing the cell to die, because they, you cannot surmount that passive cross match, and it will be a very, very bad idea to transplant a patient who has a positive reaction against the donor. That's a very crude method, and so technology has moved on since then, and we've actually developed more fancy techniques to try to figure out if a donor and a recipient is compatible. And some of these techniques, for example, the flow cytometry, can give you an indication of whether you can safely transplant the recipient and donor without having to do all that, you know mixing and looking at them down the microscope, it just basically generates this graph on the on the right hand side over here, and you see that this this spike here is to the right of this spike here, and this spike here is negative control, so this will be a positive reaction and typically we are told that when you have a positive reaction, once it gets to a certain extent, it would not be a good idea for you to accept that donor for this recipient we've actually become even more sophisticated to the point where we don't even need to do any of these reactions anymore. We can actually very highly accurately characterize the antibodies that the recipient has ahead of time, and we can actually make a prediction as to whether a donor will be suitable for this uh, recipient or not. And the advantage of it is once we can make a prediction, we don't need to wait for the results of this reaction that we have to do, which can be quite time consuming. And if you have a kidney all the way on the East Coast that needs to be flown into the West Coast for a particular recipient, you can actually make that decision very quickly and you minimize any delay in surgeries. This is just a quick slide to kind of remind me because we may not be all familiar with the blood type compatibility. So here, you can see here uh, an old donor can donate their kidney without any reaction to almost every single uh, blood-type individual. So O O donors are known as universal donors, whereas AB individuals, they can accept a kidney from almost any individual without mounting a reaction. So AB individuals are known as um, uh, universal recipients. So myth number five, if you mount a positive cross-match reaction against your intended donor, then all bets are off you're, you're going to be committed to a lifetime of dialysis. You're never going to get a transplant. Well, that's not true, because if that's true, then we'd be, be in serious trouble here. So how do we get around that? So there's one thing that we participate in at UCSF and that, you know around the country. I showed you earlier on since 2008, there's been a good number of transplant centers that, that starts doing this kidney pair donation or um, more commonly known as kidney swaps. Um, and there's two programs that we used to do here at UCSF. The National Kidney Registry, which is a big conglomerate of different centers that puts in donors and also recipients so that we can mix and match and and do these swaps, or what we used to do is a single-center paired kidney donation where all the donors and the recipients reside here at UCSF, and we have more control over things, but the disadvantage is you have a much smaller pool of donors, and so you may not be able to find every single recipient a compatible donor. If you've never heard of this, the National Kidney Registry was founded. It's a private corporation, by the way, based out of New York. It was started in February of 2008 by this uh, gentleman called Garrett Hill. And um, it's a pretty interesting story. He wanted to be a donor to his daughter. Um, Turns out that he wasn't compatible. He had to kind of go through a lot of um, heartache before his daughter eventually received a kidney transplant. And after the successful transplant, he thought you know, there must be a better way to go about doing this. He came from an IT background. He developed a very sophisticated uh, computer software and started this company in order to find incompatible donor-recipient pairs, a compatible uh, transplant. And to date, they facilitated more than 3,600 kidney transplants in the United States. And right here at UCSF, we've done over 200 transplants with them. In the simplest sense, a paired swap is the donor who's not compatible with the recipient donates the kidney, and it goes to recipient number two, and vice versa. The donor from the recipient number two who's not compatible with the intended recipient donates the kidney to recipient number one, and everyone's happy. But that limits the number of transplants that can potentially happen. A more sophisticated way would be to do what we call a donor chain, where somebody, what we call a non-directed altruistic donor, steps forward. Somebody who just, out of the goodness of the heart, wants to donate one of the kidney. They don't care who it goes to, so long as it benefits someone that then sets into motion a domino effect so that the kidney gets bounced around and the, uh, the, the kidneys get flown all over the country to the point where multiple recipients and donors go on to undergo surgery. And ultimately, that last donor donates a kidney to somebody, for example, here at UCSF, who ends that chain. And you may have heard about this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, this was 2012, where um, uh, we made history here uh, 30 kidneys, 60 pairs, so recipient and donors, who benefited from this gentleman right up here in the, in the left upper corner who just wanted to donate a kidney to somebody, and his only condition was, I want this to benefit the maximum number of people. And that led to 30 transplants uh, and 30 recipients were able to come off of dialysis as a result of his, um, his gift the number of kidney transplants that were facilitated through the National Kidney Registry has grown over the years, so much so in 2018. Uh, they've done almost 619 transplants. And if you look at number of kidney swaps in the country that was performed, um, there was 870 that were done in 2018, the lion's share of which was um, done through the National Kidney Registry. And not to toot our own horns, But here so far in the last 12 months, UCSF is the second most voluminous uh, transplant center within the uh, National Kidney Registry. We are only beat by the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And once the patient go in the National Kidney Registry, the expected wait time is only about 1.7 months, not years, months. So that... You know, it's in comparison to the eight to nine years that I was showing you for a blood type O individual who is committed to that much of a wait time if they just waited their time out on the deceased donor wait list. And the outcomes through the National Kidney Registry is at least not worse, if not better, than the living donors that are done through the non swap kidneys. So, myth number six the donor and the recipients must undergo surgery at the same time. I mean, it makes sense because if the recipient, if the donor gives off a kidney and the recipient don't get a transplant in in exchange, it looks like, you know, we're really not being fair here. But it turns out that there are some innovative things that are being done around the country, and the advanced donation program uh, is one of them. The donors donate ahead of the planned surgery for their intended recipient for various reasons. Usually it revolves around specific time frames. So for example, most of the time, a donor said, I'm a teacher, I have the summer months off, I really don't want to have to take time off during the normal school year uh, for the recovery process, can I just donate first? And then you know, so long as you give me your word that my recipient will eventually get a transplant, I'm okay with that. Or donors who are in the military and they could be deployed at any point in time, and they want to take advantage of the fact that they are now based in the U.S., they want to donate a kidney just in case that they, they get deployed. Then they've done their piece, and their loved one and the recipient can they get a kidney transplant later on. So this group within the National Kidney Registry reported their outcomes for the uh, they've early experiences with the advanced donation program. The first 10 uh, transplants that were done through this, and you can see here, the amount of time that separates the initial donor who donated the kidney to the time the recipient eventually uh, got a transplant can go as short as 10 days all the way to almost 18 months. And this is a prime example of what happened. Donor 1 is the husband of recipient 1. He was getting worked up to be a donor to his wife. In the meantime, his wife actually was on a waiting list and got a deceased donor offer. So she successfully got a transplant, and her husband said, you know what, I'm almost done with the process. My wife benefited from somebody who wanted to donate a kidney, and I want to benefit somebody else. I'm just going to go through with the, the, the workup, and I want to donate my kidney to somebody. While he was getting worked up, his wife got a really bad rejection, and it was clear that the kidney was probably not going to last very long. So he came back and said, you know what, I still want to donate my kidney, Eventually, when my wife's kidney um, uh, basically fails, I want you to prioritize her for a second transplant because of what I've, I've I've done for somebody else. So they, we, you know, the National Kidney Registry put their heads together and said, you know, what? I think we can we can we we can probably make it work. So what happened was he ultimately donated, and as a result of his gift, ten transplants that normally wouldn't have happened. Well, I guess nine transplants since his. His wife eventually got a transplant. But nine other transplants that wouldn't normally have happened, happened. Um, and eventually what, what, what happened, about two years almost to the date of his, uh, his donation, his wife eventually got a transplant through the National Kidney Registry, separated by two years. And obviously, we make it very clear to the donor and recipient that just because the donor has stepped forward and donated the kidney, We are not making any guarantees that the recipient will eventually get a transplant. We will make every single effort possible. Because if this company, the National Kidney Registry, goes bankrupt the next day after the donor donates a kidney, then all bets are off because there's no way that we can guarantee that a recipient get a transplant. But so long as they're in business, they promise that the recipients whose donor had donated already will eventually get a transplant. And so these are just medical, legal kind of jargon. They make sure that the donor and recipient signs off on all this stuff so that they understand the risk that they're taking on. But that's only for patients who wanted to donate a little ahead of their recipient. What happens when the donor donates years before the recipient? And in fact, sometimes the recipient may even not, may never need a transplant, but the donor still wants to donate in, in, in case the recipient needs a transplant. And... Usually how it works is the donor goes on and donates the kidney, and it benefits a whole lot of people. At the end of it, the intended recipient gets given this voucher. I mean, it's not an actual voucher, but it's our word that when it comes time for that recipient to get a transplant, you come back to us, and we'll make sure that you, you, you get a transplant. And these are actually a couple of examples. A four-year-old girl who was born with one kidney, she had kidney disease and... Um, it's anticipated that she would need a transplant in maybe 10, 15 years from now. Um, her 64-year-old grandfather knew that by then he'd probably be too old to be a donor, so he went ahead and donated his kidney so that the grandson can go on to um, to get a kidney in the, in the future. And because of his gift, that led to three transplants that were done at UCLA in December of 2014. Uh, and as far as I know, his Grandson still has that voucher that he will eventually look to redeem. Case number two was a 10 year old girl who received a kidney transplant from a living donor in 2007 and was working really well after nine years. Her 54 year old father knew that she would probably, in most likelihood, need another transplant at some point in time, but by then he may not be around. So he donated his. Kidney to allow the daughter to get a backup option should the kidney fail. And that led to eight transplants that were done in August of 2015 at um, Presbyterian Wheel Cornell Medical Center in New York. And case three was that same recipient Her 60-year-old aunt said, well, you know, just having one voucher probably isn't enough. She's so young, she may need a third transplant. Why don't I go ahead and donate my kidney so that she gets two vouchers just to be on the safe side? So that led to a 14 additional transplant that was done again at, at Cornell in 2016. So this very fortunate girl now has two vouchers should her first transplant fail. Again, this voucher program is obviously fraught with certain issues, um, it, it, it helps overcome this you know, separation in, in time um, between the, the time the donor wants to donate and the time the recipient will need a transplant. Again, we make it very, very clear to the recipient that there's no guarantees that the voucher recipient will ever get a transplant. It ensures that the advanced donor is truly altruistic, and Dr. Fries can attest to this. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to donate my kidney, and my son's going to eventually get a transplant, and I'm going to give him the voucher. But then it turns out that the son didn't need a transplant, but I'm going to give it to my cousin. They wouldn't, know any, they wouldn't be any wiser. No. When you tell them specifically that this is my intended recipient, they actually do a swab of the mouth. They type them so that they know exactly who the identity of that individual is. And when they come back to redeem the, the kidney, they get, they get swapped again to make sure that they're giving the kidney to the person that you had initially intended this kidney to go to. Um, and if the original voucher recipient... Passes away, then the voucher usually becomes void, and the goal of the program is to try to maximize the number of facilitated transplants. As you can see earlier on, that would have happened. Uh, that wouldn't have happened had the the swaps not been possible, and each voucher donor facilitates an additional four point seven transplants on average. Uh, again, if the organization goes bankrupt, all vouchers become void. Uh, and they have to you know, figure out ways to try to prioritize transplant. If you have multiple people who has vouchers, who steps forward and overwhelms the system, they have to find a way that they can actually prioritize these transplants. So myth number seven, if a donor donates a kidney, then the intended recipient can only be eligible to kidney to get a kidney in return. So uh, the same organ for the same organ uh, for, for return and I'm not violating any patient confidentiality since this was uh, widely publicized in the uh, press. Um, this is a, 90, well, she was 19-year-old at the time. She wanted to donate her kidney to her mom, and she came to UCSF, and it turns out that she wasn't a good kidney donor for one reason or another. She went away, she did some research on, 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 on online, and she found this article that was published that, theoretically said that if somebody was willing to donate a piece of the liver, then maybe the left one can get a kidney in exchange. She didn't know that this has never been done before in the United States. Actually, it's never been done in the world before. She just took it for granted that this was widely being done. So she called around all the hospitals in the United States. The receptionist didn't know who to patch her over to. In fact, she said in the, in, the, in the article that one time she said, what, you wanted to be a donor? Then she got patched to the morgue. So eventually she got a hold of UCSF and she talked to one of our transplant surgeons here and she said, I saw this article, would you consider this? Our surgeon looked at the article and said, you know, it's a very interesting idea, never been done before. I'm not sure that it will be possible, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to entertain it. Eventually, after about 18 months, she donated a piece of her liver to this very fortunate lady who needed a liver transplant because her sister, who wanted to be her liver donor, unfortunately didn't have a large enough liver. So she benefited from her liver donation. And in return, her sister donated her kidney to this young girl's mother. And we published this in um, uh, the American Journal of Transplantation uh, last year. Uh, and it's the, the first case of a kidney for, uh, well, a liver for kidney swap. Um, and I'm hoping that in future this may become commonplace because um, f- for sure we have a, a severe organ shortage here in the country, and any kind of innovative ways for us to kind of cut down on that wait list and, and, and increase the number of organ supply uh, really helps. And this is just a schematic to represent how a liver goes to the recipient of some other pair, and the kidney gets donated in return. So in conclusion, wait times for kidney transplant remain long in the United States and around the world for that matter. Living donor kidney transplantation offers a shorter wait time and it makes these preemptive transplant more likely, including increasing the, uh, the longevity of these transplants. There may be a higher risk of kidney failure among the donors versus the non-donors, all things being equal. But that risk is generally considered very low. And I think with the appropriate counseling and appropriate selection, I think living kidney donation should not be contraindicated. The kidney paired exchange functions to allow transplantation in those who are very difficult to match because of these preformed antibodies I was talking about earlier on and innovative programs to try to further enhance transplant options for those who are difficult to match recipients um, will will always be needed, and I think uh, the transplant community will always be trying to push the envelope as long as it's safe to do so. And with that, I conclude my my talk today, and I will open the forum up for uh, any questions that you may have, and thank you very much for sitting through the whole session. So um, the question was, what is the viability of an organ being taken away from, you know, removed from a body up from donor uh, until it can be placed in the recipient? Um, Dr. Fries may be in a better position to, 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 to answer that question, but I've seen that kidneys have been uh, incurred what we call a cold ischemic time, meaning that it's put on an ice box up to about 30 hours and still be able to get transplanted into a recipient, Although some, a lot of times these kidneys may not work uh, right away, meaning that the patient may end up needing some dialysis until the kidney can wake up from what we call a sleepy kidney. And sometimes it may not work at all, but I've seen it pushed out all the way to 30 hours. But typically we like to keep it well within 24 hours. So the question was, So long as somebody is blood type compatible, what are the chances that they will still have antibodies that would preclude a donor from donating to a recipient? So I think antibodies are not all created equal, and there's different levels of antibodies, and we typically score it using this measure called PRA, panel reactive antibodies, and it goes from zero percent all the way to hundred percent, and obviously the higher the percentage. The less the, the likelihood we're going to be able to find a compatible uh, donor for that recipient. So I think in those who are not sensitized, meaning they don't they have a PRA level of zero and probably below twenty percent, the chances are we're probably going to be able to find them a pretty good donor. Um, between twenty and eighty percent, it's harder, but I don't I wouldn't say that it's impossible. I think if you're patient, you can probably find somebody. Eighty percent and above becomes increasingly difficult. And I think the paired exchange is something that has really revolutionized um, the transplants in these highly sensitized individuals with very high antibody levels. And once you get into the 99 to 100% um, uh, PRA levels, it becomes very, very difficult, but not impossible, because we've been doing this for a while now, and we've seen patients with... PRA levels of 100%, who still end up getting what we call a perfectly matched kidney. So I wouldn't say that it completely loses hope just because you have high antibody levels, but it just makes it more difficult, and it may put that kidney at a slightly higher risk of rejection afterwards. But I wouldn't give up hope. So the question was, what are the selection criteria for a living kidney donor? So number one, they need to have two kidneys. (laughs) Um, I, 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 know, I know it's uh, surprising, but sometimes patients are born with one. And you know there are many studies that show patients who are born with one or they lose a the kidney because of traumatic reasons who live out a very, very normal life with one single kidney. So we may not even be aware of that. So number one, we do a very sophisticated uh, imaging study to make sure that they have two kidneys first. And number two, um, they need to have enough kidney reserve in order for them to give up one of the kidneys. So we do blood tests we also get the donors to do a what we call a 24-hour urine collection so that we can assess what the kidney function is. And if there's ever any doubt, we then put them through a special study where we inject a dye, and that dye gets filtered in the kidney, and it gives us a very, very accurate representation of what their kidney function is. And there's certain cutoffs that we follow. Obviously, the younger you are, the the higher the, the 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 kidney function we would want before we would allow that person to donate a kidney because the the sense is a younger donor who gives up one kidney they have their whole life in front of them and we want to make sure that they left with enough kidney to last them the rest of their life whereas if you're older we are probably able to take a little take on a little bit more risk knowing that you can probably get by with slightly lower kidney reserve is there anything that automatically disqualifies you? Like- diabetes. If a donor is diabetic, then that disqualifies them. If somebody has uncontrolled high blood pressure, that disqualifies them. If somebody has cancer that hasn't been adequately treated and there hasn't been a period of time where we know that the cancer has remained in remission and hasn't come back, that would automatically disqualify them. Here in the United States and probably in the world over, if there's any sense that the donor is doing this for financial reasons and that you know because getting paid for organ donation is illegal in this country and in many countries then that automatically disqualifies them um so or if we felt that the donor is being coerced into being a donor out of their own free will that that would automatically disqualify a donor so the first question was if somebody sustains a rejection after a transplant could we remove that and put it into a different recipient is, is that That's the question cuz you said oh, it's yeah Right, so typically no, um, because you know I think most rejections can be treated, um, so long as we know what kind of rejection and there's appropriate medications that we can we can use to try to treat that. So typically we would not remove a rejected uh, organ um, and put it into another individual. So the question was, do we have any um, specific considerations for individuals who has polycystic kidney disease uh, that's causing their kidney failure? Um, and, and, and because of the sheer volume of these kidneys, whether it is in consideration. Yes, there are, and uh, we make it uh, a point when we evaluate recipients whose original disease is from polycystic kidney disease about the possible size. We do imaging studies to look at them. We see if they are symptomatic. For example, sometimes the cysts is so large it's pressing on the stomach, they're throwing up, they're nauseated, they're losing weight as a result of um, not being able to absorb the proper nutrition. And then I reach out to my surgical colleagues, such as Dr. Freeze, and I would talk to him or her ahead of time and say, do you think in these individuals it, may, be, it may, may make sense to remove either one or both of those kidneys at the time of the kidney transplant to make room? So the, yeah, the question is, do we leave the original kidneys in when we do a kidney transplant? Yes. So theoretically, somebody who has two functional kidneys that then failed and they get a transplant, they would have three kidneys residing inside of them. It's technically much more complicated to try to remove those kidneys, and it's probably not worth it, because eventually what happens is the blood flow preferentially goes to that new transplant, and the the, 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 the original kidneys will slowly lose their function and and shrink in size. Yeah, so the question is, how do we determine if somebody should get a preemptive transplant or not? Um, Actually, the goal is to try to get preemptive transplants on everyone. Unfortunately... With the wait times that we have here, um, that's only really possible with individuals who has a living donor. And even then, the workup on the recipient and the donor side to get both of them ready for the surgery may drag on long enough that the person may end up needing dialysis before they get to the transplant. But the goal will be to try to get to a preemptive transplant before any dialysis needs to be started because it gives you the best outcome. So the question is, is dialysis detrimental to the uh, kidney because it's damaging it? No, it doesn't. The dialysis itself actually just takes over the function of what the original kidneys are supposed to do. I think some of the reasons why patients don't do well when they're on extended periods of dialysis is because they get more frail. And, you know, the dialysis treatment itself doesn't – let's say you start off with 100% of your kidney function with two normal functioning kidney. The dialysis, um, believe it or not, only really replaces about 25 to maybe 35% of your original function. Because think about it, your own kidneys work 24-7. When you're on dialysis, the the main modality of dialysis that happens in the United States is what we call hemodialysis. And most people who get hemodialysis get it at a dialysis unit. And it typically is treated three times a week for about three and a half to four and a half hours. So they're a lot of downtime in between the times when you're not on dialysis. And so if you average it out, the function that the dialysis machine replaces is only about 25 to 35% of the original function, which is enough to keep somebody alive, but not enough to kind of give them a, a long, fruitful life. So the question was, if the donor has an undiagnosed cancer... And, oh, okay. So they have a genetic predisposition for, for cancer. Uh, and you're not talking about genetic predisposition for kidney cancer? You just talk about all cancers in general. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know if I know of any kind of specific gene mutation that obviously puts you at risk of kidney cancer. Um, but even even if somebody has a genetic predisposition, they will probably need some kind of a inciting or a trigger event. And if they don't get that trigger event, it may not ever translate into a a, a cancer-forming process. So I think in, in, in that hypothetical situation, anything can happen, and if we knew that there was ever any risk, we would probably put the recipient on what we call surveillance. So we'll watch them very closely, and we'll probably do imaging studies of the kidney to follow them up, just to make sure that nothing became of it. So the question was, how long do transplants typically last? On average, a living donor kidney transplant, we're telling most patients, is lasting about 20 to 25 years. But that's average. We've also had a patient who's had it for over 40 years. But there's also living donor kidneys that barely lasted a year. But on a deceased donor's side of things, those kidneys may, on average, only last 10 to 12. So if you look at the grand scheme of things, a living donor kidney not only gets the recipient transplant sooner, it also almost doubles the longevity of those transplants. The question here was, if somebody sustained a traumatic injury to one kidney years ago, and he or she has never had any issues with their kidney function, could that injured kidney still be viable for donation? I think it would depend on, you know, if you were to step forward as a potential donor, we'll put you through a lot of um, very rigorous testing, and ultimately we'll take a look at your, your imaging studies to see if there's a discrepancy in the size of that kidney that was injured compared to the normal kidney, and we may even do this special study called a split renal function, so that we can see one side versus the other, and how much of contribution to your overall kidney function each one of them are contributing to, to try to determine if we could remove the, the, the in, quote-unquote injured kidney. Well, thank you very much for coming along tonight.